Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. Uh, I'm probably flying solo today. I know Regan is really, really busy and may not be able to uh, to jump on. If she does, uh, she certainly is welcome to do so. Um, I've got a good show planned for today. But again, before I get started, let me uh, let me remind people that we are listener supported radio, and we do, and I mean really do, count on your contributions to the stations that air this show. Uh, and those stations are WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York. So I'm asking the listeners in these two radio markets to to make a contribution to the station so they will keep uh, on the air and they will keep me on the air. So uh, if you are listening in New York on WBAI, I wish that you go to the pledge line and go to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And uh, follow the prompts, make a one-time donation, become a buddy. Um, you know, donate when you can, uh, what you can. Uh, if you're in Washington, D.C., into that, in that market, or if you're listening online and you want to choose which to, to, to support. But again, if you want to support WPFW, I ask that you go to 202-588-9739 uh, or go online to WPFWFM.org. And again, follow the prompts, make a contribution. It is the way that these stations maintain the quality program that they do, the diverse program that they do. Again, I, I can't say it enough how, um, how much I appreciate having a space in these two radio markets, in Washington, D.C. on WBFW and in New York on WBAI, to share my experience uh, as a native person, to share some of the guests that we have, to to provide Regan DeLoggins the platform for her strong uh, sentiments and words and uh, viewpoints. And and of course, we try to give you a perspective you haven't heard. We're, you know, oftentimes we're talking about native issues, but many times we're talking about issues that affect us all. And But to offer a, a perspective that you haven't necessarily heard before, and it's Again, part of this is not about me trying to indoctrinate you. It's trying to let you know, just just to let you know that this perspective exists. Not necessarily you have to, you know, sign on to it and or to you know to you know to take this as your perspective. But if you know that another perspective exists, then you know the, the decency that we all have, the, the respect that we have for diverse opinion, diverse people, diverse thought. That's what uh, we're asking, is that you consider that there may be a perspective that you hadn't considered before. Again, uh, this is Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, normally with Regan DeLoggins, but uh, in all likelihood not with her today. Um, so here's what I got. I want to talk about the, the court system, the, the, the legal system in the United States. And from a Native perspective, <clears throat> I'm going to start off with telling a, telling a bit of a story uh, about a legal dilemma that just came to an end only like last week it's, it's it's only been over for a week and a half maybe so a friend of mine who is a native tobacco wholesaler licensed by the seneca nation uh here on the cataraugus territory of the seneca nation uh he is a wholesaler he brings in predominantly almost almost exclusively native product that he distributes to the various um I want to say smoke shops, but now they're, they're really convenience stores that exist on our territory and other territories. So he has a license to to distribute here, and uh, his Seneca Nation license uh, allows him to distribute to other native territories. Now, for the most part, everybody accepts that we have this right. And I'll get into what the state believes and, and their position on this, so, this stuff, but... Everybody accepts that we sell tobacco without New York State stamps on them, without New York State taxes on them. In fact, we sell motor fuel, our gas stations. In fact, everything we sell on our territory does not have uh, New York State tax on. In fact, the state acknowledges that we don't pay New York State sales tax. Where we depart from the state's view, the state's view is that if you live, if you're Seneca and you live on Seneca territory and you purchase a product for your use and consumption on Seneca territory that you're that you don't have to pay taxes now I'm not Seneca I'm, I'm Mohawk I'm going I live here on Seneca territory but as far as the state's concerned they believe they have the right to tax my purchase of any product 
on Seneca territory because I'm not an enrolled Seneca, which of course is absurd. But they also believe that if, if a, anybody who's not an enrolled Seneca, so a non-native person who comes onto the territory to purchase, even if they purchase it for consumption here, like, you know, look, there's gaming um, uh, establishments here. There's casinos and there's bingo halls and there's other forms of entertainment on territory. So the state's belief, and, and of course, there, uh, the other thing I say, there's also non-native people who live here, married or, or children or whatever. They may not be necessarily native at all. But the state's belief is that if you're not an enrolled Seneca on a Seneca territory, they have a right to tax the sales of, uh, of any purchase, purchase that you make, which we, have th of course, think is absurd. Now, the state knows it's absurd, too. Why do I know they know that? Because they do nothing to try to enforce this thing. So although they'll say they have that right, they do nothing. They, they know they're powerless to, to enforce that, even if they really believed it, which I don't think they do. But the fact that we do a certain amount of commerce from territory to territory ends up being pretty problematic for, um, for the state. They get caught into this issue about what to do if we are transporting a product from one territory to another territory, like tobacco, for instance, that is supposed to have a New York State stamp affixed to it unless you're a New York State wholesaler. So they don't want to recognize our distinction. So anyway, let me get back to the story. So, so my friend who is this, this uh, tobacco wholesaler, he delivers a native brand of cigarette to Akwesasne, which is a Mohawk territory um, at, the, at the top of the state. And so he delivers this, this load of, uh, of tobacco. Now, that place that he delivers to also supplies a... Um, product to another smaller territory which is a little farther east there out towards Plattsburgh. so this native territory in Akwesasne this native um, store purchases a load of tobacco and and then hires essentially this friend of mine from the Seneca wholesaler who has the right to distribute and be a common carrier hires them to deliver another 150 cases from Akwesasne to Ganyange, which is another native territory. So that's what the driver does. And along the way, he gets pulled over by the state police um, because there was some, you know, they put up these these safety inspections um, on the side of the road. And he drove by, he didn't know what he had to stop for. So they stopped him and um, and they asked him what he was carrying. And he, and he produced a bill of lading that said he was carrying this native brand of tobacco that he was transporting from Akwesasne to Kunyange. It was all clear and it was all well documented. It's nothing being, hid, being hidden here. He was in a, in a delivery truck. He wasn't, you know, <laughs> he wasn't smuggling it in some sort of obscure vehicle. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, the state police sees 150 cartons of cigarettes from this, this uh, driver and lets him go with the truck. After that, so now, again, just so you know, a, a case or a carton of a case of cigarettes is about it's about a thousand dollars. So it's about one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of product that the um, that the state police just seized. So that's what somebody is out, you know, whether the the Seneca wholesaler has been fully paid for this or not or not. But regardless, somebody's out one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, then this, the state revenue department decides they're going to fine everybody that's associated with this, at least from the, the Seneca wholesaler standpoint, the driver, um, a couple of companies that are listed under the same ownership um, and finds all, you know, several entities. What, a, what essentially came to like $1.3 million. So not only did they take the product, $150,000 worth of product, they find, uh, they find a bunch of companies and individuals over a million dollars. This gets, and the way this process works, the, the first legal remedy is a hearing, a, a tax department or a revenue department hearing. So it's not in the courts yet, although these are our judges and these are you know, properly trained adjudicators. So it goes through, um, the, first, the first guy to go through this is, um, is the driver. In the end, 
the the revenue department I think the revenue department, if, if not the, the state court, they dropped the case against the driver. They said, look, he's just a driver. And, you know, they use they use a couple of common carrier statutes, you know, that uh, that they thought, you know, he could qualify for immunity under. And and so he gets released. But and and then a few of the other companies get dropped, by the way, said, but the, but the main owner of the uh, of the company is still being nailed with this point three million dollar fine. He loses in the, in the revenue um, hearings. I think he loses at a couple of places in state court uh, and ultimately goes to the state Supreme Court where there's a four judge panel. And just a week or so ago, that four judge panel unanimously ruled that the, see, the search of the vehicle was illegal and threw out the whole thing. Now this has been going on for over eight years. And here's the thing. In order for him to appeal this case, they made him put up the full value of the fine up front. So he had to he had to put he had to produce a million you know million three million and a half or something like that dollars, and essentially leave it on like on a deposit or something like that or escrow or whatever. He had to turn it over to the court in order to fight this thing. So he had to pay it first. I mean, so you know this whole presumed innocent thing, yeah, not so much. And and then it gets then it gets thrown out on a technicality. Now the reason I bring this up is because it, at no place in this process do we have the ability to legitimately argue that we have the right to do any of this. I mean, even though the state kind of knows, look, we even a few years ago, and I personally got two state senators, a Republican and a uh, and a Democrat, to write a letter to the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance to say. What is your policy on native brands and on native to native commerce? Because in our view, and this, these are two lawmakers now on both sides of the political spectrum, saying in, in our view, the na native people have a right to, to do their own thing on their territories. And they have the right to native to native commerce and, and that the state does not have jurisdiction over native brands. And, and there's a basis for that. We can get into a whole legal case associated with on how these guys and how other courts have determined that New York state or any state doesn't have the right to tax a product that we have added value to produce, manufactured or otherwise added value to. And that goes, there's a whole bunch of legal precedents for this. I mean, I, I still think it's problematic that, that there, the general view is that states can try to try to tax us and we have to, we have to prove that they don't have the right to do it. But regardless, but the, so the general, the general view that most people have is that yes, we can we can conduct native to native commerce and we can sell products without New York State stamps on or New York State tax on it. But, but the courts never rule on that. I mean, they, I mean, with with very little exception, they they stay away from it. Even if we get a sympathetic court, which obviously my friend ultimately ended up with for fairly sympathetic judges because they threw the case out. And I say they must have been sympathetic because every step along the way, he made the the common carrier argument, you know, our, our legal right to, to do this argument. He, he made all, and he made the, the illegal search and seizure argument. The revenue hearing didn't, didn't toss it out because of that. The, the two other courts didn't uh, didn't toss it out. So finally, when it gets to the, to the state Supreme Court in front of four judges, they see this. And, and I got I to gotta go back and quote my, my old friend, Bill Kunstler, William Kunstler. He used to say to us as Native people specifically, you're not going to win in their courts. So what you need to do is as you're making your argument, jurisdictional arguments, treaty arguments, whatever else, you've got to make additional arguments you got to give them a little back door that they can they can slip out of you know in the, in the interest of justice and that's another beautiful one in the interest of justice many times these these judges would like to rule in your favor but they're not going to rule they're not going to create precedents for you so you give them a couple of arguments that that they can throw the case out the best you can hope is that they're going to dismiss the case? And look, we go through this with IRS, you know, claims with with any number. I mean, hell, even fighting even even fighting a traffic hit on our territory, 
It's been done many, many times. But the courts will never say, yeah, we don't have jurisdiction. They'll never say that. They'll, they'll, they'll throw out a case, and I've got a good friend of mine right here in, uh, in Cattaraugus who does this all the time. He, he helps people fight their, their tickets when ticketed on territory. And for the most part, the judges will say, we're not going to hear a case on the, the, the jurisdictional issue. You made a compelling argument that the state doesn't have jurisdiction, but I'm not going there. We're just going to throw this case out in the interest of justice. That's what they say, in the interest of justice. So what happens is we never establish the legal precedent. I mean, with the possible exception of something going all the, all the way to the Supreme Court, where there may be some legal dicta, but you know, that may in a way be positive for us. We always end up in a situation where even when we win, we only can win to the extent that we have our individual cases thrown out. We never win we never make a win for the people. You know, look, and, and we fought fights like that. We, you know, we, we've made all these arguments. So I say that, and I tell that story, because even when we win, we don't really win. We just, look, we're, we're still out, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars for the legal expenses, and we're still out, you know, in fact, I don't think my friend is going to get that $150,000 back on the on the cases that were seized, but he doesn't have to pay a million dollars. So, you know, so he's... He's good as far as that goes. But we, we never establish precedence. Now, the reason I bring this up is, I'll tell you another story. <laughs> in 2010, during the Obama administration, there was an effort that the Obama administration had, had initiated to review the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So what he did is he, he had the State Department host a series of consultations, a series of meetings, um, both with quote-unquote tribal leadership and with um with ngos meaning the rest of us and i managed to squeak in and, and sit in and listen to the you know to, to a couple of these hearings and then participate in a couple and the one that i was able to able to participate in was they actually held, hosted at the um at the museum right there in, in washington dc the the uh, national museum of the american american indian uh, um so they had it in the in the auditorium and what they did is they, they put all of these federal agencies on the stage. I mean, they had the Interior Department. They had, you know, the uh, Treasury Department. They had, I mean, I think they even had Defense. And they, I mean, they had all of these, you know, all of these agencies on, um, on the stage. And we were all in the audience. And they decided they'd, they'd field some questions. And I think they had, um, uh, at that time, Obama had a couple of people, Native people, in higher places. He had... Uh, Kim Teehee, who was the uh, senior policy advisor to the White House, she eventually stepped down and Jody Gillette became that, um, that as well. I don't know what her title was before that, but, but she was involved in, in, this, um, in this event as well. But the question kept coming up that during the, the Bush administration, the United States rejected the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And... So the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia all voted against it. Every other country, either a couple abstained, I think, but all the other countries voted for it. Four opposed it. Four voted against it. And the United States was one of them. And the question was, why? Why did the United States vote against this? And what the Bush administration said officially, and what the Obama administration was still questioning, was whether the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples would ultimately affect international law and affect what the United States regarded as its current remedy for conflicts between native people in the United States or, or individual states. And they kept talking about this thing, the current remedy, current remedy, current remedy. So when we got to ask some questions, says, so what is this current remedy you keep talking about? And they said, well, our court system. And I said, your court system are a remedy between us as a native people, distinct people, sovereign people, and you, your courts are the unbiased <laughs> remedy. Your courts that enforce your laws are the remedy for dealing with issues that are really more political in nature than, than legal? And they said, yes. I said, well, that doesn't work. And, and so <laughs> as proof of that, we go, we go back to, again, to, to my friend's case here. They never once considered, there was never a part of this, this whole case, this million-dollar you know, 
essentially fine that was being imposed upon him. There was never any consideration about whether we had the legal right to do this or not. All New York State kept saying was, well, our laws are, as it relates to tobacco and, you know, contraband cigarettes. Wait, wait, you know, we're not talking about contraband cigarettes. We're talking about native cigarettes. And they, they, oh, no, we're not even, we're not treating it any different. So in other words, they were ignoring us as individuals, as, as distinct people. And they were trying to impose their laws on us as if we weren't native people. You know, and again, uh, you know, I specifically had gone to these New York state senators for this, for this letter, asking what the state's policy was. And if, and the fact they never got an answer. So George Maziar's state senator from, from the Western part of New York and, um, and Tim Kennedy, who's who's still sitting as a as a New York State senator, they they wrote drafted this letter. I helped <laughs> asking this question, and they never got an answer. But less than a month after that, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance, their this again the, the tax department for the state, they issued an interdepartment memo to their field agents about what to do about native brands. And we call it the do not seize letter. Ironically, I got my hands on this memo from a reporter from the New York Post. He, he, he called me up and asked me some questions about state not enforcing law. And he says, yeah, I got this memo here. I said, really send it to me. It wasn't meant for my eyes. And of course I widely distributed, but, but so, you, so we had this memo that basically the, the, the the department heads, the lead inv uh, uh, investigators for the Department of Taxation and Finance, were telling the field reps, "Do not seize product if it's native," and 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 created like you know four or five scenarios that they said, if the load is you know partially premium brands like Marlboros or you know or Newports or something like that, then seize those, but don't seize the native brands. So there's this whole you know schedule that they had about not seizing native brands. So the tax department clearly knew there was a distinction between native brands, native uh, wholesalers, and New York wholesalers or, or any other state. I mean, look, if you're, if you're transporting tobacco products across New York state from one state to another, as long as the state is willing to recognize that you are a legitimate wholesaler, which they won't do for us. Doesn't matter that we have a Seneca Nation license or a license from any any nation. Nope. We're 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 disregarding that. We only honor our documents or their documents from other states. I mean, and that's that's the view they had. So again, I go back to this question. Then how the hell is is the United States claiming that their courts are a remedy for these conflicts? When 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 we enter the courts, the, for one thing, for us to be in a state in a state court or a federal court, the only way we can be there, and you know, past the first day, is if the courts say yes, we have jurisdiction over you. Well, let's start there. How did you get that? How did you, the state courts or federal courts get jurisdiction over what happens on our territories or our activities on our territories or between our territories? We never gave it to you, and. There's no consent here. There's, I mean, all this consent of the governed, right? It says it right there in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, there's no consent of the governed here. And, and if you're going to cite, you know, laws that got passed, you know, federal laws like Public Law 280 or 232 and 233, these, you know, these U.S. statutes that talk about the states having jurisdiction, that's you giving yourself power. That's not us giving you power. That's not us agreeing that you should have this, this kind of criminal or, or civil jurisdiction over us. It's just you taking it. And that's a violation of U.S. law. I mean, every part of U.S. law is supposed to have a legal foundation to it. So when we argue these things, they never will go back. It, see, the burden always gets put on us to prove that they don't have jurisdiction. And, and we ask the question, no, we want you to prove that you do have jurisdiction. And don't just cite court precedents because they're all based on the same thing. Some of it goes back to the doctrine of Christian discovery. And the fact that, you know, in 1833, you had a Supreme Court basically said that, say that 
under the doctrine of Christian discovery, our sovereignty was necessarily diminished once white people discovered us. That's literally what they say. The Jewish lady on the court for all these years, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in footnote number one when she ruled against the Oneidas who had purchased land back in their claim area and, and took it off the tax roll. She said, no, you can't do that. Under the doctrine of Christian discovery, and this is what she cites in her footnotes, that the sovereigns, meaning white people, became vested with the title to your land uh, uh, after discovery. Really? Well, how did that happen? See, they say these things, but they don't say how it happens. And it doesn't matter that we argue these things because they're never going to consider those arguments. Go back to Bill Kunzler. Bill Kunzler says, yeah, make those arguments. But you better find some other little back door that, that if you can find a judge who's willing to give you some relief, that relief is only going to be dismissing your case. And that's what my friend uh, Eric, had just, Eric just went through. He, had a, he was facing $1.3 million in fines. And after going through many layers of judicial review, finally four judges and, and of course it costs him every single time he has to you know, he's paying lawyers every step along the way and and they throw it out because of illegal search and seizure of course it was an illegal search and seizure nobody gave you permission to search the back of the truck and and what was in the truck was exactly what the bill of lading said you didn't need anything more than that and <laughs> that interdepartment memo that said do not seize this was exactly the kind of product that that memo said do not seize. And this only happened you know, a short time after that memo came out. So when we bring up that memo in, in a legal proceeding, they said, well, that's irrelevant. Uh, that's not, um, uh, that's, that's inadmissible evidence. That's just an interdepartment memo. It's not a legal document. Yeah, but doesn't it have some weight here? Look, during this, the, the, um, the course of this trial, I actually testified um, as an expert witness for uh, for the driver. He was just a young kid, <laughs> a young kid who was facing a million point three dollar uh, you know, dollars in fines. Uh, and I testified during his trial. And I had one of those judges who was genuinely interested. You know, and we talked about all of this stuff. And you know, I think there, in a way, there's the only precedence that was established was the fact that I got some testimony into the into the record that had never made it into a court proceeding before. And for whatever reason, the state attorneys didn't, they didn't protest. They let, you know, and in fact, it gets to the point where the judge starts asking questions, which is kind of a weird thing here. You know, in, in, in that situation, and I think this was still just a, a legal proceeding under the banner of, uh, of a revenue hearing. Um, but it was still a legal proceeding. She, I mean, she was a sitting judge, and but she was genuinely interested in, and wanted to know more. Now, the judge is going to make you know is going to make the determination. There's no juries with this stuff, right? So, I mean, I can understand that. But along the way, in this case, when I say that the court system is not for us and and that it was never designed for us, I mean it's also very very biased because again, a court cannot consider really consider issues related to sovereignty because they can't all a court can consider is the law that they are sworn to uphold and their jobs are to sort out and, and this is the job of attorneys too is to sort out whether a law has been properly properly applied or whether it's been used in an abusive manner but the interesting thing is somewhere along the line the same technicality that they that they used to to throw out the case against the driver which was that he was merely a common carrier my friend who, who owned the company said well my company was merely the common carrier and the judge not the state lawyers but the judge brought in his own evidence to negate that argument during the course of the trial not in his legal dicta not in his in his in his ruling later but he brought this up and so we're not just fighting the state, we're fighting the, the judge. We're fighting the entire system when, when, when we're trying to challenge something that they're doing illegal to us. So, I mean, I don't know how to say it any more clearly that these courts are, are incapable. And you know, and look, there's some history associated with this. 
So let me let me take a little bit of a trip down memory lane here. Because historically, we have always had interaction with with colon with the colonists, with the colonizers, with white people. And you know, sometimes it was just trade and we we did have certain things that we put in place that if there was a trade dispute, we had we had means to to solve it and you know, we, we talked about you know, ways that we could, you know, in fact, in Canandaigua Treaty you know, of, of, of 1794, there is a provision in the treaty that says if a white man commits a crime against a native person, we will not seek justice from that white person. We'll just petition the president or, you know, some, you know, legal authority, white authority to make sure that justice is, is applied to, to him. Now, this isn't about bringing suit. This is just petitioning that, you know, that a crime hasn't committed. And the same consideration came back to us, is that if a Native person committed a crime, they would not prosecute us. That This was called Article 7 of the Canandaigua Treaty. That they would not prosecute us. That they would petition our leadership, chiefs or whatever, and that we would um, pursue a, a process to make sure that justice was served. And of course... There's nothing that's changed that other than the fact that that the, you know, white courts have basically taken over on everything. So Article 7 of that Canandaigua Treaty, which has never been um, thrown out, just isn't isn't followed anymore. But but we go through through this this convoluted um, bureaucracy, you know, for what happened also was that we would lease out lands. Most people think that Native people, just, we just ceded all our lands. At some point, the pressure was too much, or we, we were somehow perhaps conquered in war, and to the victors went the spoils, which was our land. No, that's not the way much of our land was, um, was, was defrauded out of us. Much of it happened through leases. We would lease property, a field or you know, a stand of trees or a large area, to a lessee, and... They, they came up with these legal ways of doing this thing that we were really not that familiar with. Some of these leases were for 999 years, which is, of course, absurd. There's no way today that anybody would consider a 999-year lease legal. But other leases were 99 years, which is still absurd. I mean, I don't think there's a, there's a court or, a, you know, or, or any judge that would consider a lease that long really, really valid. Such such as it was, but what ha what would happen is, the white folks would stop paying their lease payments. So what were we supposed to do? We could physically remove them from that, but in all likelihood they were going to you know bring in their military or their police or whatever else and stop us from doing that. So what recourse did we have? Well, we could sue them, right? No, we couldn't. The at that time, and and this goes on for over a hundred years <laughs> essentially. Um, we didn't have standing. As far as the U.S. court systems were, Native people could not bring a case in a court of law. Not at the state level, not the county level, not you know, at the federal level. Because we didn't have the legal standing. We weren't citizens of the United States. So what were we? How could we? So we had no recourse. So, so essentially, white people would just, they'd enter into a lease with us, and then they'd just keep our land. And we had no recourse. What would happen sometimes is the state or the federal government would negotiate a treaty with us that would oftentimes, we, our, our, the word in our language for treaty was we, we give up our land. I mean, that's usually what happened. They'd negotiate a treaty and they'd move the line about where our, you know, where, what the boundaries of our territories were. So, but those weren't, the the land sessions or, or that wasn't us ceding land the land had already been occupied by white people so with the state or the federal government because states were doing treaties at the time they would say well it's in our interest to to resolve this because we already have our people living there they're already living there so um let us compensate you for the fact that you you know that that you got screwed out of your land basically but we didn't have any standing it wasn't until 1946 that a solution for claims that native people would have against Americans or against the United States 
would have some vehicle. But it wasn't court. It was called the Indian Claims Commission. And this was supposed to be an arbiter, you know, some vehicle, bureaucracy that would allow um, a third party to hear a case. And that wasn't a, it wasn't a court. And it should be, they were enabled and empowered to hear a complaint from Native people and then petition the federal government or whatever to, to do the right thing. <laughs> what it really came down to was these guys were negotiators. Their whole jobs were to, were to get us to name a price. Yes, we screwed you out of your land, um, and we're going to we're going to um, affix a price. And oftentimes, if it was land, they would say, "Well, the value of that land in 1777 was only uh, you know three cents an acre, so we're going to pay you three cents an acre <laughs> or whatever." And we wouldn't we we would be ill-equipped to be in that negotiating in, in that negotiation. So we would get screwed. It was never such a situation where this claims commission would say, yes, you have a valid claim for your land. Here's your land back. No, that, that never happened. Their, their, their goal was to evaluate whether there was just compensation for lands that were ceded. And if it wasn't, then they, they would cough up more money. Or if there was some other fraud that was committed in a, in a land session, and they would just come up with money. So it was just a vehicle for the for the federal government to, to print money and you know send it our way to, to to shut us up basically, but we were we we still couldn't necessarily go into a court. It would take years and years. In fact, the Oneidas um, initiated what they called test cases to figure out is there a way that we can get before the court. And ultimately, the Oneidas did get a, a case in front of the Supreme Court and got a a narrow margin of victory in the Supreme Court that ruled that their ancestral land, which was, you know, in this test case, of, I think it was like 250,000 acres, was um, that they had legal claim to it. Now, that's what the court ruled. They didn't say, okay, so it's yours now. They just said you have legal claim to it. That left the state and the counties um, in, in a position that where the court was telling them, you need to negotiate a settlement for that 250,000 acres. And that never went well. That's why the Oneidas bought land and ultimately ended up you know, having Ruth Bader Ginsburg cite the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. So this, this is what we've got. I mean, this is the way these cases go. We never can look at the court as something that's unbiased or that is really blind because they aren't. They, they're, they're totally confined by... Again, they're, they're racist laws. I mean, we, we talk about critical, critical race theory, right? <laughs> critical race theory is analysis on how much law has been shaped by racism. Well, basically almost all law has been shaped by racism, especially as it relates to Native people. It's crazy, and Regan and I talked about this you know, just, just last week. I mean, it, it's absurd when you think about some of the attention that is going to um, uh, the residential schools only now. I mean, residential schools existed for a hundred, over 100 years in both the U.S. and Canada. And because a few native territories decided that they were going to um, pursue gathering more information after the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on the Canadian side had ended, ended years ago. But because of that, they decided that they were going to um, take it upon themselves to, um, to to investigate whether there were really these mass graves or the you know or whatever. And so that's that's essentially what they did. And they found this ground penetrating radar, and they determined that yes, um, there were many of these buried children there, mass graves, unmarked graves. So now it's getting a lot of attention. But the crazy part is. It is going to get more attention, especially as the U.S. side starts to look at, you know, how many children were, were not just abused, but because it isn't just about the dead children. It is about, you know, these children that were either killed or allowed to die because of, you know, malnutrition or some sort of incompetence or whatever, neglect. But it's also about the abuse. So when we go through that whole exercise, just like on the Canadian side, then what? An apology? I mean, Murray Porter song, I mean, is sorry enough. Because Canada apologizes and then writes a few checks. 
but nothing changes. I mean, if, if you spent almost 200 years, over 200 years, trying to eliminate us as a distinct people, and then decide, well, yeah, the 100 years that we did it in, to your children, yeah, that was really wrong. We're sorry about that. Can we write you a check? But you still maintain that those schools were successful, that, that it, was a, it was an overwhelming success, that you were able to, to, to take our children and wipe away our identity. So you're going to say that indoctrination, that assimilation is complete, and we're going to treat you as subjugated people now. I mean, the, so when, when somebody says, well, what do you do about the residential schools? I say, well, the first thing you do is you acknowledge that not only was, that it was wrong, but that it wasn't successful, that we are still distinct people. Our sovereignty should be recognized. Our distinction, not only in our territories, but as we do native to native trade or, or whatever. We can't even get a freaking passport acknowledged by the, the international community as distinct people. And we, we, you know, we go through this when lacrosse teams try to play in Europe or whatever, or where, wherever. I mean, the fact that, that we can't get the international community to acknowledge that we have the right to create our own travel documents. And don't tell me, oh, well, your travel documents aren't, aren't sophisticated enough. Well, you know, for hundreds, for hundreds of years, you, you had paper passports. So who cares if we have paper passports? As long as we have a document that, that accurately reflects that our identity is properly being accounted for, what more do you need than that? And if you're saying you need something more, it's because you're it's it's because that you're trying to impose your will on us. This is what we go through. So even as I as I'm glad that the attention is going towards these these buried children. For me, I don't want to look at that solving that as if it's in a silo all by itself is the answer. Because the answer is what's happening to us now. How much of that same mentality that imposed and forced assimilation that went into those, into those residential schools on the U.S. and Canadian side and in Australia and Africa and every place else, how much of that continues today? Not just with foster care and adoption, but with the states insisting that they don't need to recognize us as distinct people. So... Why don't they think they have to recognize us? Well, because you've been, for, for 200, over 200 years, you've been trying to wipe out that distinction. So now you just arbor, arbitrarily decide, yes, we did wipe out that distinction. We did it through all kinds of illegal means. We killed you. We, we, we stole your children. You know, we, we committed genocide against you. And we're real, really sorry about that. But you know what? Now you're ours. Really? So... The whole criminal enterprise that you engaged in for 200 years, you're saying results in something legal, some sort of legal subjugation where you now have jurisdictional control over us? No, I'll, I'm sorry. Any of this stuff that we deal with, whether it's you know land rights and land protection, environmental protection, whether it's you know the fallout of the intergenerational trauma from residential schools, mascot issues, whatever. Part of it is us giving, uh, taking back our say on who we are. And if we still have to be in a battle over whether your imposition of U.S. citizenship on, our, on us and on our territories has been successful, then we can't deal with, with residential school reconciliation how can we reconcile the past if we're not ever going to acknowledge that what's happening right now in the present isn't, isn't accurate? And again, so the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples becomes uh, this declaration in 2007. United States votes against it. But after 2010, after these, these series of consultations that I mentioned earlier, the Obama administration does move a little bit. And he says, you know, we are willing to recognize the aspirations of the agreement. Well, for only recognizing the aspirations of the declaration, I should say, is not the same thing as recognizing the declaration. Same on the Canadian side. Canadian side, they're, they're actually passing a law they call the CANDRIP, 
which essentially is supposed to codify the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People into Canadian law. Eh, not quite, but that's what they claim it's doing. The problem is, it, it, here's the problem. In the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it clearly states that this is the minimum standard for our survival and our dignity. It's not the solution. It's not the utopian solution. And in fact, here's the problem again. This many years after the passage of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, there is still no mechanism to hold a nation state accountable for the oppression of, of indigenous people that they are in claiming authority over. I mean, the UN Declaration of the Indigenous Peoples never addresses things like jurisdiction, never even addresses things like, and I hate to use this word, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna use it so you know what I'm talking about, like tribal sovereignty. The only time the word sovereignty is even mentioned in the, in the declaration is when they're talking about the sovereignty of nation states not being um, infringed upon by this declaration. So <laughs> you're gonna let the nation states to continue to infringe upon our sovereignty but not hold them accountable. So when the Obama administration or the Bush administration, the Obama administration and every administration since then claims that courts are still the, the remedy for these conflicts, it's because there's no other remedy. Well, there is, but there's no defined remedy. See, here's the real remedy. It's, it's, the remedy is a political solution. If we allow litigation and a legal solution to everything that we do, look, the United States should recognize who we are, but they don't. They recognize us as subordinate to their laws. Look, when people talk about a federally recognized tribe, <laughs> they mean a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Well, what if there are those of us who aren't? And they know that we aren't because They've had to, they've attempted this like many times. They did it with the with the 14th Amendment, and they tried it again with uh, um, the Indian Reorganization Act. They, they over and over again, the Citizenship Act. They've tried to do these things where they said, okay, we are now theirs. We, you know, the, you're not, you're hereby an American citizen. But that was done in 1924. 1934, they had to redefine, try it again, because they know that if we don't consent to it that their declarations are somewhat meaningless. Before I go, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention again the problem with legal systems like laws and even, even re congressional resolutions. I got to talk about Hawaii again because Hawaii is a perfect example of a system that is just so screwed up and skewed against Native people in general. So United, United States illegally occupied um, and committed essentially a coup against the Kingdom of Hawaii. And they did this with the support of some white people who lived in Hawaii and, and a, you know, a ship, that, a, a military ship that happened to be in Hawaii at the time. And so these white people who lived in Hawaii basically made a declaration that Hawaii, the kingdom of Hawaii was no more. It was now the Republic of uh, the Hawaiian Republic and that they were the government and they had the U.S. military there to back them up. Look, there, there was no treaty. There was no discussion. This was just basically a coup. And usually when you, people think about a coup, they say, well, that's usually when the military takes over, um, you know, a government. Well, this was the U.S. military backing white people to take over the government. <coughs> That's what happened in Hawaii. So then this white government, this Republic of Hawaii, then they say, well, we, um, we uh, want to have this land annexed by the United States. So first they declare they're the government, and then they say they want to be annexed. Now, the United States knew that some of this was wrong, even at the time. Grover Cleveland, who was the president at the time, said, you can't take over a country and then ask to be annexed. An annexation treaty has to be with an established government, which the Hawaiian kingdom was, recognized throughout the world. And then we consider that treaty, we negotiate that treaty, and then we take that treaty and, we, and, and the, the president agrees to it, and then it needs to be confirmed by two-thirds of the Senate. That's the process for the United States to annex territory. 
That's not how Hawaii was taken taken from the Hawaiians. They knew that they didn't have a, a legitimate treaty. So what the, the following president did, which, which was McKinley, said, well, we're not going to go through that process. We're going we're to use a new process, or we're going to use a, a different process. They've used a joint resolution of Congress. Now, joint resolutions of Congress are these legal pro these proclamations that are made by simple majorities of the of the of congress and the senate and usually it's for like naming a national park or declaring a holiday it is not about creating legal statutes but this was the means in fact some of the the congressmen and senators who participated in it at the time said this isn't legal we can't do this this isn't legal but they did it anyway that's how Hawaii becomes annexed by the United States through a mere joint resolution of Congress. Now, because everybody knows this is kind of a sham, and, and this happens, I, want, I may get the date wrong, I think this is like you know, 1898, something in, in that area, but in, or, or, or maybe earlier, maybe 1893, because in 1993, during the Clinton administration, he initiates the effort to do a joint resolution of Congress to apologize for what the United States did to the Hawaiian Kingdom. So this apology resolution, which was actually passed through a joint resolution of Congress by a much greater majority than the illegal annexation was, it gets, it gets passed through the, this joint resolution of Congress, but it has no force of law because when the Hawaiians tried to use this apology resolution, in any land claims or legal proceedings, the Supreme Court said, oh, there's no force of law. There was plenty of force of law when they took the place, but not when they apologize it for it. So this is my fear is we, we end up with apologies like Canada did over the residential schools. So we'll get Deb Haaland to, to write a really nice apology, which will mean nothing. This is why the courts and even the lawmakers themselves trying to come up with a legal process that does not have legitimacy associated with government to government anything is the problem and that's where we're at today. So that's why I wanted to do the show. I wanted to do the show to, to point out and you know and my friend Eric his case and I'm, I'm glad he, he dodged a bullet with this million dollar plus fine. But at the end of the day we end up in the same situation where we cannot, ever establish any legal precedents for the courts or any of the you know you know any of the law enforcement to acknowledge that we are distinct people we know it you know it they know it but they will not let it go into any kind of legal precedents that's where we end up with this situation so um Look, we're pretty much out of time. Let me remind people again that we are listener-supported radio, and we do need your support. Um, we do need you to uh, to support the station, uh, uh, both WPFW and WBAI. So I ask that you go to your pledge lines. If you're in New York, go to 212-209-2950. Make a donation of any size. If you're uh, or if you want to go online, you can go to give to WBAI.org. If you are in Washington, D.C., I ask that you support WPFW by going to 202-588-9739. Make the call, uh, or you can go online to WPFWFM.org and make a donation there. I greatly appreciate it. I thank you so much for, for listening to this, uh, uh, to this program and for supporting these two stations having uh, a Native voice on it. Um, I can't say much more than that. So, again, I want to thank you so much for, for supporting, uh, su supporting our voice on your airwaves. Yahweh.